that's me. All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 in our Bibles. I read of a lady recently... I'm going to switch mics, okay? I don't know if I can tell a story and change my mic at the same time. But I'm going to try. I read of a a lady recently. She was uh, engaged to be married. Her father was completely against her marrying this man. And... uh, I don't know all the details of that or the reasons why, but he was just totally opposed to it. And um, she went ahead and got married anyway. And she married a good man, from what I read, and they had a wonderful marriage. And the daughter began to seek reconciliation with her father. Her father really had written her off, would have nothing to do with her, wouldn't speak to her, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't get together with her. And it really was sad. I read it over about it over this week, and uh, with Thanksgiving in mind, I thought how sad that must have been. And uh, so the daughter began to try to reconcile with her father, though really it, we might argue it wasn't her fault. And she began to write him letters, and she would write the letters, and they were very beautiful letters. Letters they were very contrite. She took some responsibility. And she wrote letter after letter, and, and months in between the letters, and, uh, and eventually she began to start receiving the letters. They began to be returned to her. And the father would receive them in the mail, and he wouldn't open them, and he would just send them back to his daughter. And uh, they were never reconciled because of that. Her father ended up dying, and uh, those letters, as I read some of the letters that she had written... I mean, they were beautiful. Uh, The love that she had for her father and uh, the sincerity with which she she wrote them. And and I really believe if the man had opened them and read them, I really believe his heart would have been touched, regardless of all the reasons why uh, he was frustrated with his daughter. And I really believe they would have been reconciled. They would have been brought back together again. And really, that's what this passage is all about. Um, The letter is the word of God. And God is seeking to reconcile himself to mankind who who, who sinned. And God, of course, is holy and mankind is sinful. And there needed to be some sort of reconciliation. And God paid all of the price for reconciliation to be to be accomplished so that we could be brought together again god with mankind and uh and yet many people don't open the letter and they don't read it and they don't know the heart of god and his love for them many of us in this room do know what this book says we do know the message we we do know that that we are sinful Uh, And that we do know that God is holy, but we also know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to reconcile sinful mankind to himself. And it really is a beautiful message. 
We've been studying here in chapter 2. We're going to finish, Lord willing, chapter 2 this morning in the time that we have. The first half of chapter 2, you remember as we studied those verses, verses 1 down through verse 10, um, Paul in the first three verses really, he didn't mince any words, and he reminded the believers here at Ephesus, and they were Gentiles, not Jewish believers primarily, but Gentile believers, Uh, Paul reminded them of who they used to be. And you remember some of the words he used? Uh, He used the word dead. You were dead. (laughs) That's not very flattering. He says, but you were dead. That's who you used to be. Spiritually, you were dead. And then he, he talked to them about how they had been deceived. They had believed lies. And because they had believed lies, they were actually the children of disobedience. He actually was saying, you were the children of the devil. And you did his will. All of us in this room could acknowledge that. That's, what, that's who we used to be. That, that, that's what we used to do. And, and because we were dead in our sins and we were deceived, believing lies, and because we were disobedient, uh, we, we had been defiled by sin. And our garments were sin-stained and tattered by the filth of sin. And that's who we were. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. And so Paul told them, you were doomed You were doomed. But then we read in verse number four, the beginning part, but God. And uh, we were able last week to consider what that meant, but God. And, And we were told there in those verses that followed that God loves us. And, and out of that love that God has for sinful mankind, that God, out of that love, showed his rich mercy to us. And his grace flowed out toward us. And God gave us not what we deserved, but God gave us what we didn't deserve. And, and because he loved us, the Bible says he made us alive again. He quickened us. Literally, the idea is that God raised us from the dead. Just as supernatural as it was for Jesus Christ to raise Lazarus from the dead, and we would all agree that was a miracle, so too did God, through Jesus Christ, raise you and I, those of us who are saved, those of us who have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, so too did Jesus Christ raise us from the dead. And so we learned that God loves us and that, and that he has quickened us, he's made us alive again. And then, and then we learned that he has exalted us and that we already have a place with Christ in the throne room of God Almighty. There, there are some in this room and you've only been saved for a few months. And yet, and you, and you might say, Seth, I haven't done a whole lot for the Lord with my life. I, I attend services and, and I, I try to read the Bible here and there and I pray more than I ever, ever prayed in my life. But Seth, I, I'm no model Christian. I'm just starting in my, my walk with the Lord. Uh, and yet I want you to know, if you've received Christ as your personal Savior, God already has exalted you. He's given you a place in Christ at the throne of God. And that place is settled, and no man can take that away. And we saw that, too, that, that God keeps us. So he loves us, and, and he's made us alive, and he's exalted us, and he keeps us. And no man is able to pluck you from your Father's hand. When I was a young boy, I do this with my children now, but when I was a young boy, my dad would come home from work and he was exhausted. I never understood that then, you know, I never understood that. You know, dad, what have you been doing all day? You're always tired. You know, he'd come home from work, he was tired, and he would lay on the couch sometimes, and he'd just lay down for a quick nap, 
And, uh, and of course, I would want to play with him, and I'd come up and try to wrestle with him as a little boy. And, and he would normally put something in his hand, like a penny or something, and he'd say, okay, you go ahead and try to open my hand. And so I would like put all of my energy into prying on his fingers, and while I was prying on his fingers, he could actually get a little rest. And now I do that with my kids. I'm like, here, try to get this out of my hand. I'm just going to close my eyes for a minute. And, uh, but, you know, no matter how I pried, I could never open my father's hand. It was too strong for me. And, and that's the picture that God gives in the word of God for our salvation, that we are secure in our father's hand and nobody is able to tear us from our father's hand. Your salvation is secure in the Lord. If you were to walk away from God today and never not care a lick about his church, the body of Christ, and, and not care about his word, we might wonder if you were saved. But truly, if you are a born-again child of God, even, even if you never added to your faith these things, you might doubt if you were saved. But truly, if you're born again, no man can pluck you out of your Father's hand. Your salvation is secure. Not of works, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. And, that's, and that's, those are the truths that we've been studying in this passage. Look at our text now, Ephesians chapter 2. I want to begin reading in verse number 11. Verse number 11. And really, Paul now continues talking about these sort of things, our salvation, but he's going to describe it in more detail. Have you ever wondered how God would describe the salvation that you and I have? Because that's exactly what we're reading. This is God's description of our salvation. It's the details. I was just a five-year-old boy in downtown, downtown Detroit, Michigan, in an old Ford truck when I trusted Christ. But, but what happened spiritually? Well, we're reading about it. Notice in verse number 11, he says this. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision. Now, I'm going to clarify that uncircumcision. The, the circumcised, the Jewish people were, the, the men were circumcised, and they would call the Gentiles uncircumcision because they were uncircumcised. It was a point of contention. It was a point of pride on the part of the Jews. It, it, was, a, it was a point of rebellion on the part of the Gentiles. And, and there was a lot of animosity between the two. And so he says, remember that you were in time past Gentiles in the flesh, called uncircumcised, uncircumcision by those who were circumcised, the Jews in the flesh made by hands. Verse 12, that at that time ye were without Christ, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were outside of God's chosen people and strangers from the covenants and promises You had no covenants made to you, having no hope. You didn't have any hope. And without God in the world, you were without God. But now, he says in verse 13, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh, close, by the blood of Christ. For he, Christ, is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. And he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. He's talking about this wall of partition, this dividing wall, this animosity between Jews and Gentiles that again was built on pride and arrogance and unbelief. But there was also a partition, a wall, between 
sinners in general and God. And, and Paul is saying, this is who you used to be, but God has broken down the wall. Uh, to what end? Notice verse number 14. For he is our peace, who hath made, uh, made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, this division, this hatred, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain, Jew and Gentile, two, one, new man, and so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him, through Christ, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners. He's talking to the Jew, these, these Gentile people, these believers at Ephesus. He says, you're no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, I'm going to tell you right up front, this is not easy reading, okay? It's a little heavy. There's a lot of background here. It goes back to the Old Testament. It talks about the Jews, circumcision and uncircumcision. What is that? Uh, how does that have anything to do with my salvation? Uh, building together. He calls us a building. He calls us a temple. He calls us a family, and, and these are wonderful, wonderful truths. Has the turkey worn off? How many of you had leftover turkey yesterday? All right, so I'm going to keep my eye on you. All right, so I know who to watch. All right, uh, hopefully you had a good nap. I already know of somebody this morning who didn't get in until like 3 a.m. or something like that, so I'm watching them too. Let's pray together. And we'll ask God for help in understanding these things. These are really, let me tell you, these are glorious truths. They really are. They are glorious truths. And, uh, and let's pray that God will help us understand them and connect the dots. Otherwise, uh, we'll just have, have wasted some time together. Okay, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us this morning. Uh, we've gathered together. We've sung together. We've enjoyed one another's company. It's good to see each other again. But Lord, we really want to hear from you. We want to know more about our God and about your salvation that you've given to us. And Father, there might be someone here this morning who's never received your salvation. And though they be a good person and a religious person, they, are, they, are, they do not have these blessings from you. Father, help us to know you more. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to leave Ephesians with me for just a moment. Would you turn back with me to Luke chapter 15? The Gospel of Luke chapter 15 in your Bibles. I want to read a portion of Scripture as an illustration, and I think it will help us know what to look for as we're reading and studying here today in Ephesians chapter 2. Luke chapter 15 is a familiar passage to many of us in this room. It's a parable which Jesus often taught in parables, and when he, what he would do is he would... He was trying to communicate a spiritual truth, and so he would speak, he would tell a story, an earthly story, 
something that everybody could relate to. And for those who had hearts to believe, they, the, the spiritual truth would become clear to them. But those who had hard hearts would be totally blind to the spiritual truth. And this one is about the prodigal son. So I'm going to read it. And I want you to keep your ears open and your eyes open for the reconciliation that takes place. Two people who had been separated, who had now been brought back together again. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse number 11, the Bible says, Jesus speaking, and he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he, the father, divided unto them his living. Not many days after, the younger son gathered uh, gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain, uh, he longed for, he lusted after, he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. You can turn back to Ephesians chapter 2, but I want you to have that parable in your minds as we study this passage of Scripture, because in that parable you have this son who comes to a point in his life where he says, you know what, I don't want to live under my father's roof, I don't want to obey my father's rules, I don't want to, I don't have to think or worry about honoring my father and doing what might please him. I want what's mine, and I'm going to live my life for me. And he does, and he gathers everything that he has, He goes far, far away, the Bible says, to a far country, and there he wasted everything that he had until he had nothing. And he's literally wishing that he could eat what the pigs are eating, the slop that the pigs are being fed. That's how hungry and how low this this son had come. And then he comes to a point where he realizes what he has, and it really is nothing. And he begins to go back. He goes back to his father And and we might wonder, what would the father do? Would he receive this son who had taken part of his inheritance and wasted it? Is that what the father is going to... Is he going to be upset with his son? How is he going to receive his son? The Bible tells us, as we read, that the father runs out to meet him. And he hugs him, and he kisses him, and he brings him back home, and he says, put shoes on his feet, put a ring on his finger, and they throw a party, a celebration of the return of the son. And that's what this passage in Ephesians is all about. It's about reconciliation. God being reconciled with sinful man. There are three specific truths I want to notice from this passage. Look with me at verse number 11 and 12 first. 
and we're, we're admonished to remember that we were separated, or remember the separation. Remember your separation. Notice in verse number 11 and 12, it says, Wherefore, remember that ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Now, there really are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who are of the nation of Israel, and there are those who are Gentiles. I happen to be a Gentile, in the sense of I, am, I have no relation that I'm aware of to, uh, to Israel um, through blood or ancestry. Um, the Jews were God's chosen people. And by the way, they still are God's chosen people. God is a very special place for them. He made very special promises to them. And he's going to keep those promises. The Gentiles, though, God made no covenants to them. And it's interesting that you see it there in verse number 11. He reminds them, you are in time past Gentiles in the flesh. And he's writing to the church at Ephesus, so they're not Jewish primarily. And he says, who are called uncircumcision. You're called those uncircumcised people by those who are circumcised. You see it there. By the circumcision, by the Jewish people in the flesh made by hands. And so we're we're admonished to remember who we were, that we were without. You see that word in verse number 12, that that ye were without Christ. Down at the end of verse number 12, without God in the world. And so we're admonished to remember that we were outside of or separated from Christ. There was a time in our lives where we were separated from God. Notice in verse number 12, the beginning part, he says that we were without Christ. Now the Ephesians, in Ephesus, they worshipped the goddess Diana. It was popular. Nearly everybody did it. Uh, the temple of Artemis, or the temple of Diana, was one of the seven wonders of the world. Uh, Ephesus was a metropolis. It was a happening place. We're not talking about a backward city. And, and worshiping the goddess Diana was a popular thing in that day and age. And, and they, they worshiped her. And before the coming of the gospel, they knew nothing about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it really is a tragedy when a person is outside of Christ. They're still enslaved to their sin. They're still facing destruction. And remember, all Jews and Gentiles are born outside of Christ. They were without Christ. But notice also in verse number 12, the middle part, that they were without citizenship. They, they didn't have the, the Gentiles, the Ephesian, uh, before they were saved, they were without citizenship. Verse number 12, he says, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, we are familiar with that term. I don't remember that term when I was a young boy, aliens. I thought they were like, ooh, you know, something, UFO type thing. But actually, we are very common, that word is very common to us today, illegal aliens, right? Uh, Some people build that wall. Some people tear down that wall or whatever wall's there or whatever the case may be. We're, We're familiar with that. A person who is not a citizen of the United States of America does not have the benefits that you and I as citizens have, like 
paying taxes. And I mean, uh, other things, other benefits. But there are benefits to being a citizen, right? Uh, There's protection that is given to us who are citizens. That is the role and responsibility of a a government to protect its citizens. Um, But but the Lord, uh, through the Apostle Paul, tells and reminds these Ephesian believers that before they were saved, they were without citizenship. Uh, God called the Jews and built them into into an incredible nation. He gave them his laws and blessings. And Gentiles were allowed to live within the borders of Israel, but they couldn't have citizenship. Israel was God's nation in a special way that couldn't be said for anybody else. They were without citizenship. And this is, by the way, he's talking about you and me too, not just those in Ephesus. He also tells us in the middle of verse number 12 that they were without covenants. Notice again, verse number 12, he says, being aliens, that's you're without citizenship. But then he says, and strangers from the covenants of promise. He says, he reminds them, God had never made any covenants for you. God had never made any promises to you. Now, in the Old Testament, there are many promises, there are many covenants that are made between God and the people of Israel, God's chosen people. It's true that God promised to bless all those who bless the people of Israel, but God had not made any covenants with the Gentile nations. No promises for protection from God to the Gentiles. No promises for provision from God to the Gentiles. No promises from God to the Gentiles that he would be their God. There were no promises like that. There were no covenants. And so the Gentiles were aliens and strangers, and the nation of Israel never let them forget it, by the way. We're God's people, they would say. Who are you? We belong to Jehovah. He is our God. Who do you belong to? Who cares for you? And there really was this strong distinction. In fact, many of the Pharisees would pray daily, I'm thankful that I am not as other men are. I'm thankful that I'm a Jew, and I'm thankful that I am not a Gentile. And frankly, there were no covenants that God had made from himself to the Gentiles. There were none. And Paul reminds these Gentiles who had been saved, and many of us in this room are Gentiles who have been saved, but we're reminded that before Jesus Christ came and died for us, there were no covenants from God to you and to me. We were without covenants. He also says at the end of verse number 12, do you see it there? Having no hope. Having no hope. You see it? We were without hope. And Paul reminds these believers of this. Historians tell us that there was a great deal of hopelessness in the ancient world. And by the way, I think that's true today too. Uh, somebody over Thanksgiving mentioned how they, uh, I heard someone say that they believe that sports is the opiate of, of our day. It's like a drug. We take it to distract ourselves. We take it to find rest. We take it to find happiness and joy and fulfillment, unless you're a Michigan State fan. Or a Michigan fan after yesterday. But I think there's some truth to that. It's a booming industry. And it fills a void that's only intended to be filled by God. Nothing wrong with sports. Throwing a football 
Nothing wrong with those sort of things. But when we try to replace God with it, and in the ancient world, there were many gods. There were many gods. There were many lords. But they did not know the one true God. And you know what? What they were finding in the ancient world is that philosophies, there, might, there were many philosophers, but philosophies don't save. They don't fill the void. There were many traditions, but they didn't help. There were many religions, but they were powerless to help men face death or life because they did not have hope. And Paul reminds them of that. He also says you were without God. At the end of verse number 12, he says you were without God in the world. You know, it wasn't that the world was without gods. It was that the world was without God. They didn't know God. In Greece and in Rome, during this period of time, there were plenty of gods. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse number 5, Paul had said, There be gods many, and lords many. There are plenty of them out there. But a plethora of gods didn't meet the needs of mankind. They didn't know God. In fact, you could go back to Psalm uh, 115. We will not take time to do it this morning, but if we could go there, and the first half of Psalm 115 is all about gods, plural, that are made with hands that don't have any power. They can't even speak. They can't help. They can't heal. They can't give life. They are worthless. And then he compares it to God, Jehovah God, the second half of Psalm 115, and God is able to save. God alone, there's only one God, and he's able to save. And so, it's, so as, as Paul is writing to these believers, he says, I want you to remember something. I want you to remember that you used to be separated from God. And it all is listed there for us in verse 12. You were without Christ. You were without citizenship. You were without covenants. You were without hope. You were without God. That's who we used to be. No promises. No guarantees. Living for this life day after day after day, hoping in self. To what end? To no end. But then he says two wonderful words, or several words actually, and he reminds us, he says, I want you, I want you to remember your separation, but secondly, I want you to recognize your reconciliation. I want you to recognize that you, have been reconciled with God. Now, I gave the illustration of that, that lady, that daughter, being, who was never reconciled with her father. And it's heartbreaking to think about something like that. It gets to our heart and we think, how awful is that? It's awful for a person, a daughter, not to be reconciled to her father. That's awful. But it is much worse when a person is not reconciled to God. And and, and that illustration, that parable that Christ gave of that son being reconciled to his father can be an illustration of you and I and how we were reconciled to God. And so he says, I want you to recognize your reconciliation. Notice in verse number 13, he says it this way. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, used to be far away from God, are made nigh by the blood of Christ, by the, the blood of That Jesus Christ shed on the cross. Verse 14. For he is our peace. Who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity even the law of commandments contained in the ordinances. For to make in himself of twain of two Jew and Gentile. He's made one new man. 
and made peace. Peace between Jew and Gentile and peace between sinful man, Jew and Gentile, and God himself. Verse 16, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you, which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now the second, chap- second half of the chapter really paralyzes the first half of the chapter. In the first half, we were reminded that we used to be dead and deceived and disobedient and defiled and doomed. And then he said in verse 4, the beginning part, but God, but God has, but God's loved you and but God has made you alive and but God has exalted you and this is who you were, but God keeps you. This is who you are. This is what you have in Christ. And now he does something very similar. Uh, you notice at the beginning part, as we've already been reminded, he said, you were without Christ, you were without citizenship. In verse 12, you were without covenants, you are without hope, you used to be without God. And then he says at the beginning of verse 13, look there, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you have all of these things. And that's what he wants us to focus on. God intervened on behalf of lost sinners. That's what he's saying. God intervened on behalf of you. God reconciled. That is, he brought together again the Jews and the Gentiles to himself. You know, a worried mother longs for reconciliation with her wayward son. A concerned father longs for reconciliation with a rebellious son. A distraught wife wants wants to be reconciled to her husband. And and a a husband wants, he longs to be reconciled to his wife. But sin is the great separator in this world, and it has been dividing people in the world since the very beginning of human history. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they were separated from God. And it wasn't long before their sons were separated from each other. You remember Cain, their son, killed his brother Abel. And the earth was filled with violence, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 6. And so God judged the world, and judgment seemed to be the only remedy They deserved it, but it seemed to be the only remedy. But even after God sent the flood, mankind tried to unite again. Only this time, they were separated. They were separated at the Tower of Babel. You remember, though, God called Abraham and he made a covenant with him. And through the nation of Israel, Jesus came to the world. And it was Jesus' work on the cross that abolished the enmity the enmity, the hatred between Jews and Gentiles, between sinners and God. Uh, you're in Ephesians, but look over to Colossians, would you? Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 in verse number 20. We're talking about reconciliation. and We're, we're to recognize that we have been reconciled to God. Colossians chapter 1 in verse number 20 says this. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him, by Christ, to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And then notice verse 21, and you that were sometime alienated, and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Now the 
the question that you need to answer in your mind, that I have to answer in my mind when I read a passage like Ephesians chapter 2, is this. The truth is that God has reconciled mankind to himself by his blood. He has paid the price so that a holy God can be reconciled with a sinful man. How is that possible? And the answer is in Christ. When a person receives the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, they are reconciled with Almighty God, with Holy God. And many of us in this room this morning, this truth is very clear to us. We, we remember who we used to be. We, we don't normally think about it the way Paul's talking about it here. Not, not having citizenship in heaven and, and, and not having hope, though we, we, we connect with that one. Not, not having God without God, without Christ. But we can understand this, that we used to be separated from God. And God has brought us together. But, but, but you may be here this morning, you say, well, do I have to do more? Do I have to give more? Is that what you're after, Pastor? You want me to give something? Pastor, you want me to, be, you want me to attend more services? Uh, I just need to be faithful. Just attend services and I'll be good, right? I'll be reconciled to God. No, reconciliation with God is not found through our works. And that's what he talked about. For by grace are ye saved, through faith, in Christ, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift that God has given to us, not of works, lest any man should boast. You and I would both boast. We'd all boast. Look what I did to get to heaven. Look, you wouldn't believe what I did for God, so he would be reconciled, so he'd accept me. We would boast. And, and, and God says, no, it's not of works. You see, the key word in this part of the passage is enmity, a reason for hostility. That's what that word means, a reason for hostility, a reason for opposition. There has been enmity, hatred between Jew and Gentile. Look again at verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, there needed to be peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain, of two, one new man. Talking about the church, so making peace. You see, the reason for opposition between the Jews and Gentiles in that day was the law. And I'm not talking about the Ten Commandments. You, you see it there in verse number 15. He calls it the law of commandments contained in ordinances. We know what an ordinance is. There's an ordinance made. We all have to follow it. You know, God had, had intentionally given the nation of Israel a law. And there were actually multiple laws. God had chosen them, and he had made a nation out of them. And they had a form of government. It was a theocracy. That's how God had originally designed it. God would be their king, and, he, and they would be his people. And he would protect them and provide for them, and they would love him and worship him alone. But remember, Israel said, we want our own king. Everybody, all the other nations have a human king. We don't want you to be our king. We want a human being to be our king. We want a man to be our king. God said, you don't want that. They said, no, we do want that. And God let them have what they wanted. But there were all kinds of laws that God gave to the people of Israel. Uh, there were laws... That had to do with family, about marriage, about children. 
There were laws about what you could eat and what you couldn't eat. There were laws that were religious, what you should wear to worship, what you should bring to worship, when you should come to worship. There were laws about government. Uh, My point is there were a lot of laws. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of laws. And God had intentionally given the nation of Israel these laws because God wanted the nation of Israel to be different. The law God gave was intended to point them to Christ, but instead the nation of Israel took pride in the law. This law that God had given to Israel stood as a wall between Israel and between the other Gentile nations of the world. There was a wall of separation, and he talks about that in the passage, between Israel and everybody else. In fact, in the temple of Jerusalem, the temple that Herod had built, that was torn down in AD 70 by the Romans, there was a wall separating the court of Gentiles from the rest of the temple. In other words, if you were a Gentile, you could go into the court of Gentiles, but you couldn't go anywhere else. In fact, they were so dedicated to this that uh, an inscription was found not long ago uh, as they were excavating there and, and, and digging around. And they found this, and it reads this way, quote, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. The illustration is this. There was separation. Are you getting that? There was separation between Jew and Gentile. There was animosity between Jew and Gentile. Verse number 15, notice the middle part. The law of commandments contained in ordinances. They they should have brought Israel to humility. They, They were intended to bring them to a point of humility, but instead it brought them to a point of pride. They took pride in their circumcision. They took pride in their not eating pork. And Jesus Christ fulfilled the demands of the law in his righteous life, and he suffered the curse of the law in his sacrificial death. Romans 10 in verse 12 says, For there is no difference between the Jew and the, Gent- and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, the law no longer holds sway over Jew or Gentile. We don't. We eat pork. Uh, you, we don't wear what they were required to wear to worship. We don't give the way they were required to give under that law. It's different. You see, the law no longer holds sway over the Jew or Gentiles because in Christ, believers are not under the law. And I'm not talking about the Ten Commandments. And don't forget this, the law was perfect, converting the soul, okay? The testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. So be careful to be like, yeah, we're not under the law. That was worthless. What were they thinking? Don't forget, God gave it to them to bring them to himself and to bring you and me to him as well. It was very good. It was right. But our righteousness is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Christ abolished. You see the word abolished at the beginning of verse 15. He abolished. It means to nullify the enmity. The reason for opposition, the reason for hatred, by doing away with the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that he could make, so he could create in himself peace between the Jews and the Gentiles and himself. That was the point. There was enmity between Jews and Gentiles, but there was also enmity between God and sinners. Look at verse number 16. He says, and that he might reconcile both Jew and Gentile, unto God 
in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh, for through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. You see, not only did Gentiles need to be reconciled to Jews, but Jews and Gentiles, sinners, needed to be reconciled to God. And by the way, this was the conclusion that the apostles and elders came to at the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, Paul, uh, Peter talks about it, I believe it's in Acts chapter 15, uh, and, and, and there was this, Paul and Barnabas were going about and they're working and they're ministering, and some of the Pharisees who had believed upon Christ began to say to Paul and Barnabas, you guys need to be circumcised. You can't be saved. They literally say that. You can't be saved. Read it in Acts chapter 15. You can't be saved unless you've been circumcised. Well, what were they doing? They were trying to apply, imply that in order to be saved, you have to embrace Judaism. And so Paul and Barnabas kept going about doing miracles, and God was working through them marvelously, and they met with the other apostles and elders in Jerusalem, and they began to discuss these things. And the question was, can a person be saved if they're not circumcised or if they're not embracing Judaism? And Peter stands up and he says, men and brethren, uh, the law is not required for salvation because the truth is none of us could keep the law. Wow, what honesty that Peter displayed that day. And, uh, and, and, and he says, a, a person is saved by grace through faith alone, not of the law. And, and, and you know what? Today, by the way, in, in our day, be careful not to be a person who, who uh, you, you look at someone else and say, well, they can't be saved because they don't live their life the way I live my life. Remember, salvation is not of the law. Salvation is not... Uh, not uh, uh, obtained. Reconciliation with God is not found uh, by what I do. You know, uh, Roman Catholicism will teach that, you know, there, you need to pray through Mary or pray to Mary. You have to pray through a human priest. Uh, and, and if you don't do these things, you need to repent. And if you leave the church the Roman Catholic Church, then you're not going to heaven someday. Listen to me. If you're a born-again child of God and you never darken the door of a church again, but you have been saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, friend, your salvation is found in Christ alone, not in a church. Trinity Baptist Church can't save you. I can't save you. Uh, In fact, you can't even save you. God alone saves and that's what Paul's saying here. This is who you used to be. Without covenant, without hope, without Christ, without God. But God has reconciled you, the Jew with the Gentile, and sinners all together with himself. He's made peace. He's made peace with you. You have peace with God if you'll receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. There's no difference. You know that God wants, he, he longs to reconcile the sinner to himself. But a holy God couldn't look the other way. The sin debt had to be canceled. Colossians 2 says it this way, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened, hath he made alive together with him, having forgiven you all 
trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, that we couldn't keep, is what he's saying, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Jesus Christ is our peace. You see it there in verse 14, the beginning part. He is our peace. In verse number 15, it tells us that he made peace. In verse number 17, you see it there. He says he preached peace. As a judge, Christ could have come to declare war and judgment, but in his grace, he came with a message of peace. We're getting close to Christmas time now, right? Thanksgiving's over, so we've got to be close. My children ask me, or at least one of them, almost daily, how many days? And I say, go look at the calendar. Get a little organization in your life. That, I don't say that part, but that's what I'm thinking. A little organization. Look at the calendar. But you know, when we, when we think about Christmas, we're reminded of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. We're reminded of that angelic messenger coming to the shepherds and saying, uh, Behold, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. The Savior, which is Christ. He is the promised one. He is the Lord. And, uh, and then the angelic host join with him singing glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. That is why God sent his son to die on the cross, to come to this earth, to be born of a virgin Mary, and to live a sinless life, and to die an awful, horrible death on the cross, because God wants peace with mankind. And he was willing to pay the price to be reconciled, sinful mankind, with a holy God. It really is a beautiful Beautiful truth. We have been reconciled, is what Paul is saying. You've been brought together again. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. The veil of the temple was rent that day when Jesus Christ lowered his head and he gave up his spirit. He died on the cross. The veil in the temple outside of the Holy of Holies was rent top to bottom, signifying that now mankind has access through Christ, not through a priest, not through a temple, but through Christ alone, the great high priest himself, Jesus Christ to God. You and I have access. And reconciliation is complete. I want to notice one last thought, and we'll be done. We've seen our separation. We're to remember our separation. We're to recognize our reconciliation. And then finally, we're to rejoice in our unification. We've been united together. Look at verse 19. He says, now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners. Wait a minute. We used to be a foreigner. Remember, an alien, he called us. But we're no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, with the household of Israel and of the household of God. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. What are the Jews and Gentiles in Christ? Well, the answer is we're one, he says there. You might have noticed that Paul repeated repeatedly used the word one to emphasize that truth. In verse 14, he says that we're made both one. In verse 15, he says one new man. In verse 16, he says one body. In verse 18, you're one spirit of one spirit. All spiritual divisions have been overcome by the Lord Jesus Christ and through him. And Paul gives three pictures 
to illustrate the unity that believing Jews and Gentiles have in him. There are three of them. Very very briefly, we are one nation. Look at verse number 19, the beginning part. Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. The word saints in the context probably refers to the Old Testament saints, the, the, the nation of Israel, the Old Testament saints. Israel was and is God's chosen people. Don't make any mistake about that. But Israel rejected their Messiah and they suffered loss. They suffered the consequences. And all believers, regardless of national background, are fellow citizens. We belong to one nation. We have a heavenly citizenship that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have all the rights and privileges of being a citizen of heaven. We're one nation. We are also one family. Look at the end of verse number 19. He says, and of the household of God. Literally the house of God. We got together on Thanksgiving Day at Mom and Dad Ferguson's house. And uh, my brother Josh wasn't able to be there, but the rest of us were all there and all in one family. That's one family. And uh, you'd probably be surprised by how I'm mistreated by my younger sister and my younger brother. They they refer back to times years ago when I apparently teased them, though there is no confirmation. We've not been able to find any witnesses to that end. Uh, Anyway, but it's one family. We are one family. We, We look a little bit alike. We act a little bit alike. We think the same things are funny. It's a little odd. It's called being a family, and you know what I'm talking about. Uh, we're one family with the Jewish people, those who believe upon Christ. We're one family with God. Through faith in Christ, we've entered into the family of God, and God becomes our Father. The Father, the family of God is found in heaven and on earth. Living believers are on earth. Believers who have passed away are in heaven. None of God's children are under the earth. We are all brothers and sisters in one family, no matter our background our financial standing, our nationality. And we are one temple. Notice in verses 20 and following, it says, and are built upon the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building, he calls us a building here, fitly, skillfully framed together, groweth into an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God. Through the Spirit. You're the the dwelling place of Almighty God, the body of believers. You know, this reference to a a, a holy temple would have resonated with both the Ephesians as well as any Jews who read this, uh, believing Jews who read this as well. The Jews would have thought of Herod's temple in Jerusalem. The Gentiles would have thought of Diana's temple there, the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. But both of those temples would be destroyed, and they are. To this day, they've never been rebuilt. But the temple of Jesus Christ is going to last forever. The apostles and prophets laid the foundation for this church. Jesus Christ is the foundation. He is the chief cornerstone, as we read in this passage. Uh, The Bible talks about Christ being that cornerstone. But just as a cornerstone binds a structure together, so does Jesus Christ unite Jews and Gentiles into the church. The temple of Jesus Christ will last forever, is what he's saying. Didn't Jesus say, I will build my church? The Holy Spirit builds this temple by taking dead stones out of the pit of sin. Psalm 40 and verse 2, he brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock 
and established my goings. The Holy Spirit builds this temple by lovingly placing believers into the body, the temple of God. 1 Peter 2, 5 says, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. See, the Lord perfectly joins this temple together as the body of Christ. Look at verse 21. In whom all the building fitly framed together. Has he saved you? He's added you to the church. He saved me. He's added me to the church. Groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. In whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. You know that God inhabits us by his Spirit. It really is beyond our comprehension. But Paul is simply saying to these believers, this is who you used to be. No hope without God, without Christ, without any covenants or promises. You had no hope of anything and no guarantee of anything. No one had ever told you, I'll save you. But God has opened the door to you and to me through the nation of Israel by the Lord Jesus Christ and said, whosoever will may come. And many of us in this room heard that call and that invitation. We responded to that invitation and we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. And through Christ, God has reconciled those who were hopeless and those who were dead. He has reconciled us, sinners, to himself by Jesus Christ. And you know what? There's a tremendous peace that comes through this. I don't have to wake up every day and wonder, what do I need to do today to work, myself to he- work my way to heaven? What do I need to, I need to teach my children to keep these rules so that they can go to heaven someday. And if they don't, they're not going to go to heaven someday. I need to teach them the word of God. I need to teach them that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. But friends, our salvation is found in God alone. And you and I have a wonderful peace that passeth all understanding because of God's salvation. Would you take your hymnals together this morning? Would you turn it with me to hymn number 531? We're going to sing just the first and the last of this hymn as we close our service this morning. But before we do, I want to, I want to encourage you, I want to invite you. If you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you can receive Christ and you can be saved from your sin by believing on Jesus Christ alone. Don't put your confidence in your religion. Don't put your confidence in what you have done in you. Put your confidence in Jesus Christ alone. And we're told how, that, how that's done, how that looks. And that's done by asking Jesus Christ to save you from your sin. You can do that in the quietness of the moment as people sing. You could bow your head and without making any, any outward noise at all, but in your heart you could say, Lord... I believe that you can save me through Jesus Christ, and I accept your, sa- your Son as my personal Savior. Please save me from death and hell, and you will be reconciled to God that quickly. You could do that on the way home. You could do it at home. It needs to be done if you've never done it, and I encourage you to do that today. For those of us who are saved, we have a wonderful peace that we can live in, that we ought to walk in every day. Let's all stand and sing the first and the last of this hymn.